Chapter 19 of On Secret Service, Detective Mystery Stories Based on Real Cases Solved by Government Agents, by William Nelson Taft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19. The Clue in the Classified Column. Quinn tossed his evening paper aside with a gesture in which disgust was mingled in equal proportion with annoyance. "'Why is it,' he inquired testily, "'that some fools never learn anything?' "'Possibly that's because they're fools,' I suggested. "'What's the trouble now?' "'Look at that!' And the former Secret Service operative recovered the paper long enough to indicate a short news item near the bottom of the first page, an item which bore the headline, "'New Fifty-Dollar Counterfeit Discovered.' Yes, I agreed. There always are people foolish enough to change bills without examining them any too closely, but possibly this one is very cleverly faked. Fools not to examine them, echoed Quinn. That isn't the direction in which the idiocy lies. The fools are the people who think they can counterfeit Uncle Sam's currency and get away with it. Barnum must have been right. There's a sucker born every minute, and those that don't try to beat the ponies or buck the stock market turn to counterfeiting for a living. They get it, too, in Leavenworth or Atlanta or some other place that maintains a federal penitentiary. They never seem to learn anything by others' experience, either. You'd think, after the Thurene case, it would be perfectly apparent that no one could beat the counterfeiting game for long. The Thurene case? I don't seem to remember that. The name is unusual, but... Yes, and that wasn't the only part of the affair that was out of the ordinary, Quinn cut in. Spencer Graham also contributed some work that was well off the beaten path, not forgetting the assistance rendered by a certain young woman. Probably the most remarkable portion of the case, continued Quinn, was the fact that Graham didn't get in on it until Thurene had been arrested. Nevertheless, if it hadn't been for his work in breaking through an ironclad alibi, the government might have been left high and dry, with a trunk full of suspicions and mighty little else. Somewhere around the latter part of August, the New York branch of the Secret Service informed Washington that a remarkably clever counterfeit fifty-dollar bill had turned up in Albany, a bill in which the engraving was practically perfect, and the only thing missing from the paper was the silk fiber. This, however, was replaced by tiny red and blue lines, drawn in indelible ink. The finished product was so exceptionally good that if it had not been for the lynx-like eyes of a paying teller, plus the highly developed sense of touch which bank officials accumulate, the note would have been changed without a moment's hesitation. The man who presented it, who happened to be well known to the bank officials, was informed that the bill was counterfeit and the matter was reported through the usual channels. A few days later another bill, evidently from the same batch, was picked up in Syracuse, 
and from that time on it rained counterfeits so hard that every teller in the state threw a fit whenever a fifty-dollar bill came in, either for deposit or for change. Hardly had the flow of upstate counterfeits lessened than the bills began to make their appearance in and around New York, sometimes in banks, but more often in the resorts patronized by bookmakers from Jamaica and the other nearby race tracks. The significance of this fact didn't strike the Secret Service men assigned to the case until the horses had moved southward. The instant one of the bills was reported in Baltimore, two operatives were ordered to haunt the paramutual booths at Pimlico, with instructions to pay particular attention to the windows where the larger wagers were laid. An expert in counterfeits also took up his position inside the cage, to signal the men outside as soon as a phony bill was presented. It was during the rush of the betting after the two-year-olds had gone to the post for the first race that the signal came, indicating that a man about forty-five years of age, well-dressed and well-groomed, had exchanged two of the counterfeits for a one-hundred-dollar ticket on the favorite. Hollister and Sheehan, the Secret Service men, took no chances with their prey. Neither did they run the risk of arresting him prematurely. Figuring that it was well within the realms of possibility that he had received the bills in exchange for other money, and that he was therefore ignorant of the fact that they were spurious, they contented themselves with keeping close to him during the race and the interval which followed. When the favorite won, the man they were watching cashed his bet and stowed his winnings away in a trouser's pocket. Then, after a prolonged examination of the jockeys, the past performances, and the weights of the various horses, he made his way back to the window to place another bet. Again the signal, and this time Hollister and Sheehan closed in on their man, notifying him that he was under arrest and advising him to come along without creating any disturbance. "'Arrest for what?' he demanded. "'Passing counterfeit money,' replied Hollister, flashing his badge. Then, as the man started to protest, Sheehan counseled him to reserve his arguments until later, and the trio made their way out of the enclosure in silence." When searched in Baltimore, two sums of money were found upon the suspect, one roll in his left-hand trousers pocket being made up of genuine currency, including that which he had received for picking the winner of the first race, and the one in the right-hand pocket being entirely of counterfeit fifty-dollar bills, forty-eight in number. When questioned, the prisoner claimed that his name was Robert J. Thurene of New Haven, and added that there were plenty of people in the Connecticut city who would vouch for his respectability. "'Then why,' inquired the chief of the Secret Service, who had come over from Washington to take charge of the case, "'do you happen to have two thousand four hundred dollars in counterfeit money on you?' At that moment Thurene dropped his bomb or, rather, one of the many which rendered the case far from monotonous. 
"'If you'll search my room at the Belvedere,' he suggested, "'you'll find some five thousand dollars more.' "'What?' demanded the chief. "'Do you admit that you deliberately brought seven thousand five hundred dollars of counterfeit money here and tried to pass it?' "'I admit nothing,' corrected the arrested man. You stated that the fifty-dollar bills which you found upon me when I was searched against my will were false. I'll take your word for that. But if they are counterfeit, I'm merely telling you that there are a hundred more like them in my room at the hotel. Of course you're willing to state where they came from, suggested the chief, who was beginning to sense the fact that something underlay Thurene's apparent sincerity. "'Certainly. I found them.' "'Old stuff,' sneered one of the operatives, standing nearby. "'Not only an old alibi, but one which you'll have a pretty hard time proving. "'Do you happen to have a copy of yesterday's news handy?' Thurene asked. "'When the paper was produced, he turned rapidly to the lost and found column "'and pointed to an advertisement which appeared there.' found an envelope containing a sum of money owner may recover same by notifying robert j thurene belvedere hotel and proving property there he continued after reading the advertisement aloud that is the notice which i inserted after finding the money which you say is counterfeit where did you find it in the Pennsylvania station, night before last. I had just come in from New York and chanced to see the envelope lying under one of the rows of seats in the center of the waiting room. It attracted my attention, but when I examined it, I was amazed to find that it contained one hundred and fifty fifty-dollar bills, all apparently brand new. Naturally, I didn't care to part with the money, unless I was certain that I was giving it up to the rightful owner, so I carried it with me to the hotel and advertised the loss at once. The next afternoon I went out to the track and found, when it was too late, that the only money I had with me was that contained in the envelope. I used a couple of the bills, one, and being superstitious, decided to continue betting with that money, that's the reason I used it this afternoon. Come to think of it, you won't find the original $5,000 in my room. Part of it is the money which I received at the track and which I replaced in order to make up the sum I found. But most of the bills are there. You said, remarked the chief, striking another tack, that your name is Thurene and that you live in New Haven. What business are you in? Stationary. You'll find that my rating in Bradstreet's is excellent, even though my capital may not be large. What's more, and here the man's voice became almost aggressive, any bank in New Haven and any member of the Chamber of Commerce will vouch for me. I've a record of ten years there and some ten in Lowell, Mass., which will bear the closest possible inspection. And he was right at that. 
In the first place, a search of his room at the hotel brought to light a large official envelope containing just the sum of money he had mentioned, counterfeit bills and real ones. Secondly, a wire to New Haven elicited the information that Robert J. Thurene, answering to description and inquiry received, has operated a successful stationery store here for the past ten years. Financial standing, excellent. Wide circle of friends, all of whom vouch for his character and integrity. When this wire was forwarded to Washington, the chief having returned to headquarters, Spencer Graham received a hurry-up call to report in the main office. There he was informed that he was to take charge of the Thurene case and see what he could find out. "'I don't have to tell you,' added the chief, "'that it's rather a delicate matter. Either the man is the victim of circumstances, in which case we'll have to release him with profound apologies and begin all over again.' or he's a mighty clever crook. We can't afford to take any chances. The case, as it finally stands, will have to be presented in court, and, therefore, must be proof against the acid test of shrewd lawyers for the defense, lawyers who will rely upon the newspaper advertisement and Thurene's spotless record as indications of his innocence. That being the case, Chief, why take any chances right now? The case hasn't gotten into the papers, so why not release Thurene? And keep him under constant surveillance? That wouldn't be a bad idea. The moment he started to leave the country, we could nab him, and meanwhile we would have plenty of time to look into the matter. Of course, there is always the danger of suicide, but that's proof of guilt, and it would save the service a lot of work in the long run. Good idea. We'll do it. So it was that Robert J. Thurene of New Haven was released from custody with the apologies of the Secret Service, who retained the counterfeit money but returned the real bills, while Spencer Graham went to work on the Baltimore end of the case Four operatives took up the job of trailing the stationer, and Rita Clark found that she had important business to transact in Connecticut. Anyone who didn't know Rita would never have suspected that, back of her brown eyes, lay a fund of information upon a score of subjects, including stenography, the best methods of filing, cost accounting, and many other points which rendered her invaluable around an office. Even if they found this out, there was something else which she kept strictly to herself. The fact that she was engaged to a certain operative in the United States Secret Service, someone known as Number 33, and sometimes as Spencer Graham. In reply to Spencer's often-repeated requests that she set a day for the wedding, Miss Clark would answer, "'And lose the chance to figure in any more cases? Not so that you would notice it. As long as I'm single, you find that you can use me every now and then. But if I were married, I'd have too many domestic cares. No, Spencer, let's wait until we get one more big case.' 
and then, well, we'll say one month from the day it's finished. Which was the reason that Graham and his fiancée had a double reason for wanting to bring Thorene to earth. The first place that Graham went to in Baltimore was the Pennsylvania Station, where he made a number of extended inquiries of certain employees there. After that he went to the newspaper office, where he conferred with the clerk whose business it was to receive the lost and found advertisements, finally securing a copy of the original notice in Thorene's handwriting. Also some other information which he jotted down in a notebook reserved for that purpose. Several days spent in Baltimore failed to turn up any additional leads, and Graham returned to Washington with a request for a list of the various places where counterfeit $50 bills had been reported during the past month. The record sounded like a megaphonic call of a train leaving Grand Central Station. New York, Yonkers, Poughkeepsie, Syracuse, Troy, and points north with a few other cities thrown in for good measure. So Spencer informed the chief that he would make his headquarters in New York for the next ten days or so, wired Reader to the same effect, and left Washington on the midnight train. In New York he discovered only what he had already known, plus one other very significant bit of evidence something which would have warranted him in placing Thorene again under arrest had he not been waiting for word from Rita. He knew that it would take her at least a month to work up her end of the case, so Graham put in the intervening time in weaving his net a little stronger, for he had determined that the next time the New Haven stationer was taken into custody would be the last that the government would have a case which all the lawyers on earth couldn't break. Early in December he received a wire from Rita, a telegram which contained the single word, Come. But that was enough. He was in New Haven that night, and in a quiet corner of the Taft Grill the girl gave him an account of what she had found. Getting into Thorene's store was the easiest part of the whole job, she admitted. It took me less than a day to spot one of the girls who wanted to get married, bribe her to leave, and then arrive bright and early the following morning, in response to the stenographer-wanted advertisement. Thorene's had a lot of practice writing ads lately, remarked Graham with a smile. What do you mean? Nothing. Tell you later. What did you find in the store? Not a thing. Until day before yesterday. I thought it best to move slowly and let matters take their own course as far as possible. So I contented myself with doing the work which had been handled by the girl whose place I took. Dictation, typing, and the rest. Then I found that the correspondence files were in shocking shape. I grabbed the opportunity to do a little night work by offering to bring them up to date. Certainly, said the boss, and then took good care to be on hand when I arrived after dinner that night. The very way he hung around and watched every movement I made 
convinced me that the stuff was somewhere on the premises. But where? That's what I couldn't figure out. Having demonstrated my ability by three hours of stiff work on the files, I suggested a few days later that I had a first-hand knowledge of cost accounting and that I would be glad to help get his books in shape for the holiday business, the old man who usually attends to this being sick. Again Thurene assented, and again he blew in to explain any entries which might prove troublesome. I'll say this for him, though. There isn't a single incriminating entry on the books. Every purchase is accounted for, down to the last paper of pins. Then, when I felt that I had wormed myself sufficiently well into his good graces, I hinted that I might be able to help out by supervising the system in the engraving department, checking up the purchases, watching the disbursements, keeping an eye on the stock, and so on. Rather to my surprise, he didn't offer any objection, said that my work had been of so much help elsewhere that he would be glad to have me watch the engraver's work. It was there that I got my first real lead, at least I hope it's a lead. Back of the engraving department is a small room, locked and padlocked, where the boss is supposed to ride his personal hobby of amateur photography. I asked one of the men the reason for guarding a dark room so carefully, and he replied that Thurene claimed to be on the verge of making a great discovery in color photography, but that the process took a long time, and he didn't want to run the risk of having it disturbed. I'm to have a look at his color process tonight. What? cried Graham. He's going to show you what is in the double-locked room? That's what he's promised to do. I haven't the least hope of seeing anything incriminating. All the evidence will probably be well hidden. But this morning I expressed a casual interest in photography and remarked that I understood he was working on a new color process. I did it mainly to see how he would react but he never batted an eyelid. "'I've been making some interesting experiments recently,' he said, "'and they ought to reach a climax tonight. "'If you'd care to see how they turn out, "'suppose you meet me here at nine o'clock "'and we'll examine them together.' "'But, Rita,' Graham protested, "'you don't mean to say that you're going to put yourself "'entirely in this man's power.' The girl's first answer was a laugh, and then, "'What do you mean, put myself in his power?' she mocked. "'You talk like the hero of a melodrama. This isn't the first time that I've been alone in the store with him after dark. Besides, he doesn't suspect a thing, and it's too good a chance to miss. Meet me here the first thing in the morning, around eight-thirty and I'll give you the details of Thurene's secret chamber, provided it contains anything interesting. "'Rita, I can't—' Graham started to argue, but the girl cut in with, "'You can't stop me? No, you can't. What's more, I'll have to hurry. It's ten minutes to nine now. See you in the morning.' 
The next thing Graham knew, she had slipped away from the table and was on her way out of the grill. When Rita reached the Thurene establishment, promptly at nine, she found the proprietor waiting for her. "'On time as usual,' he laughed. "'Now, you'd better keep your hat and coat on. There's no heat in the dark room, and I don't want you to catch cold. The plates ought to be ready by this time. We'll go right down and take a look at them.' Guided by the light from the lantern, which the stationer held high in the air, the girl started down the steps leading to the basement, where the engraving department was located. She heard Thurene close the door behind him, but failed to hear him slip the bolt which, as they afterward found, had been well oiled. In fact, it was not until they had reached the center of the large room, in one corner of which was the door to the private photographic laboratory, that she knew anything was wrong. Then it was too late. Before she could move, Thorine leaned forward and seized her, one arm about her waist, the other over her mouth. Struggle as she might, Rita was unable to move. Slowly, relentlessly, Thorine turned her around until she faced him, and then, with a sudden movement of the arm that encircled her waist, secured a wad of cotton waste which he had evidently prepared for just such an emergency. When he had crammed this in the girl's mouth and tied her hands securely, he moved forward to open the door to the dark room. "'Thought I was easy, didn't you?' he sneered. "'Didn't think I'd see through your scheme to get a position here and your infernal cleverness with the books and the accounts?' Want to see something of my color process, eh? Well, you'll have an opportunity to discover it at your leisure, for it'll be twelve good hours before anyone comes down here, and by that time I'll be where the rest of your crowd can't touch me. Come along, in with you. At that moment there was a crash of glass from somewhere near the ceiling, and something leaped into the room something that took only two strides to reach Thurene and back him up against the wall with the muzzle of a very business-like automatic pressed into the pit of his stomach. The whole thing happened so quickly that by the time Rita recovered her balance and turned around, she only saw the stationer with his hands well above his head and Spencer Graham, her Spencer, holding him up at the point of a gun. "'Take this,' snapped the operative, producing a penknife, "'and cut that girl's hands loose. "'No false moves now, or I'm likely to get nervous.' A moment later Rita was free, and Thurene had resumed his position against the wall. "'Frisk him,' ordered Graham, and then, when the girl had produced a miscellaneous collection of money, keys, and jewelry from the man's pockets, Spencer allowed him to drop his arms long enough to snap a pair of handcuffs in place. "'This time,' announced the Secret Service man, "'you won't be released merely because of a fake ad and the testimony of your friends. "'Pretty clever scheme, that. 
inserting a found advertisement to cover your possession of counterfeit money in case you were caught, but you overlooked a couple of points. The station in Baltimore was thoroughly swept just five minutes before your train arrived from New York, and every man on duty there is ready to swear that he wouldn't have overlooked anything as large as the envelope containing that phony money. Then, too, the clerk in the news office received your advertisement shortly after noon the next day. So you didn't advertise it at once, as you said you did. But your biggest mistake was in playing the game too often. Here, producing a page from the classified section of a New York newspaper, is the duplicate of your Baltimore ad, inserted to cover your tracks in case they caught you at Jamaica. I've got the original, in your handwriting, in my pocket. "'But how'd you happen to arrive here at the right moment?' exclaimed Rita. "'I wasn't any too well convinced that you'd fooled our friend here,' Graham replied. So I trailed you, and, attracted by the light from Thurene's lantern, managed to break in that window at the time you needed me. "'There's only one thing that puzzles me,' the operative continued, turning to Thurene. "'What made you take up counterfeiting? Your business record was clear enough before that. And, of course, being an engraver, it wasn't hard for you to find the opportunity.' What was the motive? For a full sixty seconds the man was silent, and then, from between his clenched teeth, came two words. Wall Street. I might have guessed that, replied Graham. I'll see you safely in jail first, and then have a look through your room. Want to come along, Rita? No thanks, Spencer. I've had enough for one evening. Let's see. This is the 6th of December. Suppose we plan a certain event for the 6th of January. And so they were married and lived happily ever after, I added as Quinn paused. And so they were married, he amended. I can't say as to the rest of it though I'm inclined to believe that they were happy. Anyhow, Rita knew when she had enough, and that's all you can really ask for in a wife. End of chapter 19